You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. We are continuing our free download giveaway and today I've linked an ebook which I actually wrote a couple of years ago called The Implications and Opportunities of a Design and Build Contract. My guest is smirking at me and thinking I'm a proper loser that I even wrote an ebook like that, but I did. And it talks to kind of how main or subcontractors on a DB contract can negotiate the key clauses understand key responsibilities and actually then how best to respond to comments during the design phase if you work on a dmb contract i think it will be uh, valuable to you even if i do say so myself feel free to uh, just hit the podcast description and go and download it in the studio today i am joined by Chirag Shah for something a little bit different today. Um, it's a bit different from normal. And Chirag is a recruit, recruitment expert and founder and principal consultant at Pace Global, who are a project controls recruitment expert. Chirag, welcome to Own the Build. How's it going? Cheers. Thanks for having me. Uh, really good. So. What do you think? I mean, I saw you smirking when I was talking about my uh, writing an ebook about design and build contracts. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? It's very interesting. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah, some people might say I'm a bit of an anorak, but you know, I, I, I like these things. So, we're like I said, it's going to be a bit different today. You know, sometimes we're quite not anoraki, but you know, we talk about really detailed QS stuff on here. We talk about really focused construction issues and i want to talk to you about construction recruitment like and and that's going to be slightly different to a to a typical show, but I think it's going to be really really insightful really valuable just as a way of introducing yourself talk to us about your career today and your your journey in construction i guess sure no problems well for those listening in i'm hoping that you get some good career tips out of this um either for carrying on in your current current company or whether it's looking to move and how best to look at moving so listen in and i'll hopefully provide you some good takeaways so i i started recruitment in 2005 worked for an agency TRS for my whole time until recently. And I just took the brave plunge uh, to start my own. And the reason I did it, I just believe now we're in the era of the SME world. While you've got your great, fantastic blue chip clients, now's a great time for those that have got to the, to, to the top of the tree and got and created their own companies. And it, it, it truly is exciting times now and it is definitely the era of the SME. We're seeing so much happening with technology, especially AI, that is enabling things like this to happen. So that, that's where the future is really. Um, in terms of my own career, I, I feel from a, you know, the word expert sometimes lose, used a bit too loosely, but been doing this for almost 20 years, placed over 750 candidates. When connect with me on LinkedIn, you'll see that I've got over 175 recommendations. So enough people uh, value, value what I do. Um, so hopefully you, you'll feel, feel the same after this. Excellent, excellent. And so the era of the SME, talk to me more about that and why why that is your belief system about where we're at today. Sure, sure. So yeah, you've got great you know brand names out there and it's always good to work for these big companies and especially early on in your career, getting that training development, 
getting your RICS qualification, for example, always better to get it from places like that. But once you're getting up to a certain level, you might be hemorrhaged by, you know, other people above you in the ladder or, you know, corporate stuff, you know, issues, politics, I don't want to swear or anything, but, you know, whereas in the SME, if you, if you go and work for an SME, which is, you know, 20 to 30 people and then growing, um, you're able to help shape that vision, that culture, the opportunity to, to get shares, um, into that and, and really own the company. Well, even if you're just a, if you're a salaried employee, but you get to, to really be able to, to make it happen how you want it. Financially, you can definitely be better off as well. And um, the way the bonus structures work for these companies, do your day job. But if you're able to do the business development part as well and confident on that side and bring in work for them, then, then you're going to be laughing and do really well. Um, whereas in a big company, you, you get a thank you and that's about it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because before setting up my own business, I worked for two companies, both for five, six years. So I stayed with them both for quite a long time. One of them was an SME. One of them was a big company. And there are pros and cons of working for either, right? I certainly felt that working for an kind of almost like the opposite uh, in some ways of what you were describing there. I actually started at the SME and then ended up at the, at the big company. And I felt that starting at an SME was really, really helpful for my career because it meant that I was a lot closer to, I don't know, the decision makers and like the actual cutting edge of what was happening. It, it, it works both ways, doesn't it, as to, as to whichever is best. But I do think working for SME is a, is a really good thing. Yeah, you, it definitely accelerates your career if you embrace it wherever you are right in the ladder because you probably got the opportunity to work on different stages of a contract and, and just muck into it all. Whereas, you know, if you're working for a big company, just fixed in one position. It just depends what you want. If you want that, you know, the nice everything there, you know, the IT provider, the subsistence IT and all of that, you're going to get that big company. And an SME, you probably need to do it yourself. Um, and if you were, if they're moving office, you're probably going to have to lug chairs and build desks as well, you know, um, basically that ability to, to show. You reminded me of the start of my career yeah. now, to be honest with you. But I, you know, I wholeheartedly believe that having worked for an SME and I was exposed to so much and so many different projects at different stages that it meant that when I went to a bigger company, it actually put me in quite a good spot because I'd experienced quite a lot. But to be honest with you, working for either, you're very much at the will and behest of uh, who your managers are, right? And your direct reports. And I was very fortunate in both that I had good managers. Talk to me about, you know, I think perhaps sometimes unfairly, uh, recruiters get a bad rep. What is like a common myth about being a construction recruiter that you would like to dispel? Well, we're not estate agents. You know, I've bought... Two properties, estate agents in both cases were useless. You know, they were just a vehicle and terrible. We are, if you, if you, if you deal with a recruitment consultant, deal with someone who's been in recruitment for a while, check them out on LinkedIn and just see, you know, if they move every six months, they're going to be, they're not going to be very good. You know, work with someone that, that stays in, in a job for a period of time, got, you know, they've got a bit of a reputation about them. You'll see something about, you know, on their LinkedIn. You know, if they've got, you know, those skills, endorsements, have they got some testimonials? 150 um, of then, them. Well, yeah. Um, because then you'll see that they actually are valued in their place. Um, you know, the, you know, the key word in recruitment is, is, is consultant. Are they consultative with yourself as a candidate or as a client? Do they, you know, 
we've got two ears, one mouth for a reason. So do, 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 does the recruiter listen to you and, and take on board what your thoughts are or is it they're just making their own views? Um, is, is very key. Who, who do you contact first as a recruiter? Are you, like, I've always thought about this. Like, are you looking for companies within with whom you can recruit into as you, is that like it's a bit chicken and egg isn't it like is that what you want first or do you want candidates who you've got a really good relationship with that you then what's what how do you do work sure sure so um so for me because i'm pretty established i'm quite niche in where i recruit for so with with myself over the last five six years in particular it's kind of ongoing i've always recruited for the same type of roles with the similar clients so for me, I've got core client relationships. I don't try and work with too many clients because you can't work with everyone and you want to deliver to the ones that you do work with. So right now, um, regardless of COVID and you know whatever the media is saying, it still is a candidate-driven market. So for me, it's I've already got those relationships there. The, the job's always ongoing. So the, the key now is finding good candidates and keeping those relations with candidates because even if I'm not able to place you now, there's down the line, we, we can work together. I'm also someone that I want people to succeed. So even if you're not, if we're talking and you take another job off, I'm going to be there just to advise you. If so, if I, if I offer you 50,000 and someone else offers 60,000, I'm actually going to go and say, you know what? Take that up. Good luck on the 60. Yeah, yeah take it. <laughs> like at the end of the day, yeah, yeah. especially in today's, you know, uh, living cost crisis, um, it's very important. So, yeah. Okay. And so, in terms of the kinds of roles that you recruit for, so listening to this show now is a wide array of people. There'll be QSs, there'll be estimators, project managers, contract managers, there'll be directors of SMEs who are themselves looking to recruit. What kind of roles do you typically cover under the project controls bracket? Project controls, project services. So it does in, in, encompass QSs, estimators and project managers. Um, on top of that, the key, the key bread and butter is project controls, P6 planners and the like. Uh, and also we've taken a big uptake on data reporting analysts over the last couple of years. It's taken on quite a lot. You know, those those that have got experience with Power BI. Power BI and yeah. stuff. Yeah, because yeah, that's perhaps, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about, we've talked with the RICS, we've talked with lots of other people about what is the actual future of uh, quantity surveying. And a lot of the chatter, if you like, or a lot of the noise is that a lot of QSs can move into that data analysts, you know, Power BI experienced roles. Could you talk to me about whether or not you're seeing QSs move to that or who? Yeah, who, definitely. Okay. I, I think so, because it's very detailed if you're going to move into that role and, and get to the top of the tree in that, that um, particular discipline area. And QSs are detailed people. They know... You know, they read a contract with a fine-tooth comb. Most of and, us do. Most of us. <laughs> hopefully. Um, so to go into that remit um, is fine. Um, whatever you do, you know, whatever role you're in today, whether you're in project controls or a QS or an estimator, the, it's changed from where it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it was really much about your technical skills, but now it's that communication, stakeholder management. And, and what, whatever your role you're doing, you're effectively a project manager. You know, even if, if you're a hands-on QS, you're still a project manager. So the same thing with the reporting side. It's about gathering that data, inputting it, get, getting the, the right dashboard back out. So, you know, as long as you've got the right, those type of communication stakeholder skills, very easy to transfer into that type of role. So why do you say it's changed? Because, you know, if I reflect on you, a lot of 
detail focus with QS is some better, some worse that with with the detail. But why communication and why is that new? But before, if you were a QS, probably, don't be nasty know, about the, QSs. I'm waiting for it. To, to, <laughs> to, no, no, no. Anyone, QS or a planner, you get you do the work, and it's literally you provide that sheet of paper or that Excel sheet, and you email it over to whoever needs it, and it's done. Now it's very different. You have to go around talking to people, getting that info and and just changing how it works. Post-COVID, even more so because you're not in the same office or the same site. A lot of the time you're working off teams. So that's why the communication side is so much more important. I, I completely so. agree with that, actually. And, you know, we talk a lot about tendering and like the art of tendering. And a lot of people, well, we see certain individuals just issue out tenders and not speak to anyone who is tendering and just be like, come on then, where's, where's my prices back? And you think, no, there's a lot more to relationship building, communication. It's the whole art of the process, isn't it? So in the second half of the show, I want to talk to you about what employers should do, what employees should do. But before we get into that, I'd like to understand where you see the market now, right? And I, I'm a QS and I appreciate you're covering project control. So it's, there's a wider arc that we can talk about. But just focusing on QSs, there's a report at the end of last year that the ROCS did where they said 54% of contractors and consultants were struggling to find quantity surveyors and that was holding them back. What's your view on the... I, I, I think it's far higher, Really, I would say. Yeah, I think there is a massive demand for QSs um, in the market um, and finding good ones is very hard to find them. So if you're someone who's confident in their abilities and you think that your employer is not quite treating you like, right in terms of career tra- trajectory or your financial side, pick up the phone, speak to someone and find out what's going on um, because the market is absolutely buzzing. There is a good, you know, the, the, the key question is, what should you be Rick's chartered? You know, for me, it's always a big yes. Get get your chartership because that will take you to another level above and make you stand out from the crowd. Um, and when when you get there, then you can certainly command you know a higher higher salary and get, move up the ladder from a career perspective. Demand across construction infrastructure really busy. We're only going to see things get busier um, in the Middle East and Australia. They're crying out for good QSs. By doing that, even if you're not interested in going there, guess what? Others are going to go out there and that's going to create more demand here in the UK. Because there isn't enough, yeah. Exactly. The roles that are international overseas, there's demand in, in the North America and Canada, uh, the state and, and, going, and the Middle East and Australia, which I mentioned. So do you recruit internationally as well as nationally? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so... ROCS accreditation. So I've got a QSing degree, ROCS accredited, but I was a subcontractor and never really saw getting chartered as something that was really applicable to what I was doing. And it was never something in the subcontract world that was really asked for. I think that's different in the main contract world and definitely different when you get to client side. And I'm guessing it's uber different when you're then talking about international opportunities. When do you think... Or for what role and for what client does a QS actually need to be chartered? Um, I would probably agree with you when you're moving from that main contractor upwards, onwards. But um, if you've got the opportunity to do it wherever you're at, why not do it? That You've got nothing to lose about it from it um, and everything to gain. So I would say across the board, really. Particularly general. if your uh, company's going to pay for it. So Exactly. Going back to 
the market, right? So we speak to loads of clients, loads of main contractors and subbies with our business. And at the end of 2022, all of them, not all of them, but you, anecdotally, it felt like all of them were crying out for QSs, like desperate, none. What One or two of them that I've then spoken to as 2023 has progressed have said that that's cooled a bit and that it's a, there is a bit more availability, like the market isn't quite as hot as it was. Is that not how you yeah, feel? Um, I think it slowed slightly. I think before that, like, yeah, from t- t- late 2020 till the beginning of this year, it was really super, super busy, crazy, couldn't keep up with it. It has cooled a bit. But, you know, I keep on using the word good. If you're a good QS, the market <laughs> is still very busy. Yeah. And, and you have to understand what good looks like because everyone will say they're good. But understanding, you know, you've got the right attitude, right enthusiasm and the right skills get. Excellent. Okay, well, look, we'll talk more in the second half of the show about what you should be doing as both an employer and an employee. But we'll do that right after the break. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So really interesting start to the show. I think got good foundations there. One thing I maybe didn't ask, which I wanted to actually, was if you're a mid-level QS, that's you're not trainee, assistant, you've got five years experience, we're in London, right? So let's just stick with London for the moment. What do you think is a reasonable salary to be aiming for? Sure. Um, depending on where you're at, again, if you're mid-level, are you accredited? How has your early years gone in terms of your own promotion? But I would say you should be realistically looking for that bit of a range here, but the 50 to 65 mark is what I would recommend. There are you know, a lot of factors, the projects you've worked on, you know, how much all-round experience you have, how sector-specific, what, um, sec- you know, expert software expertise you have as well, different different parts, I would say. And if you have, going back to the accreditation, if your RICS accredited is on your APC, that range of 50 to 65, you think that the 60 to 65 element the is, end, for sure. yeah, yeah. is where you would yeah. get to yeah. if you've got that accreditation. Yeah. And moving further on then, so let's say... You're now a QS in late 20s, early 30s. Let's say you've got more like 10 years experience. You're a senior QS, maybe commercial manager level. What range from there do you think is appropriate? Sure. So, that, so that's, a, that's quite an interesting range because sometimes your career might have plateaued uh, and you might have just, you know, you, you work for, in your earlier, you know, middle years through COVID 
Um, so it, it kind of really just depends how you've, you've risen through the ranks and what you've done. So when you're talking about someone in the 26, 27 to 35, it's where are you at? Because you could be an associate director and right at the top on that 90 to 100 type of element, or you could be on that 60 to 70K as well. So it just, just kind of, it just depends on how fast your career has been moving all this time, projects you've worked on. Obviously, COVID, I've mentioned it again, but did you have any of that overseas experience, international experience, big project experience? And then, you know, it is unfortunately a bit of a question of what, who you know, not what you know. Sometimes you need to move jobs to get that that salary jump, but not not too often. So you look like you're jumpy as well. Like two, you'll just move for the money. So if you've had, like, if you're in your mid-30s and you've had three career changes, that's fine as well, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So, so that senior QS bracket is something between seventy and ninety. Again, very much career trajectory specific. How often do you think that you should, as a recruiter, you don't say every three months, but like all jokes aside, like how often do you think someone should move? Because there's that balance, isn't there, between your CV looking like a jump, yeah, jump so, one. So you've got to understand that yourself. You worked at two places for five to six years at each, which is a good amount of time. People will understand if you've moved, if you've had a, a, you've moved somewhere not quite right and you've moved off to six months to a year. But if you seem to be doing it, like if, if, if I saw someone who moved four times in five years, I'm not even going to bother talking to them because there's no faith. How long are they going to stay at this place? But, um, you know, the ideal candidate would have done their, their graduate, graduate apprenticeship, you know, their post. The first job will be three to five years. Stayed committed to a place. Yeah. Yeah. Done their L&D there. Moved for the next job. And then potentially, you know, might not have had that that jump or that career trajectory and then moved again. So, you know, over a 10-year period, you'd have been in three jobs. I I would say it's quite fair. Um, That that makes sense to me. And, you know, it, it is a fine balance because the biggest jump that I experienced was either when I handed in my notice or when I left and changed, right? And um, that's Did you stay for a counter offer? So at my first company where I was for... So I was living in Birmingham and I wanted to move to London. So I I left, I handed in my notice, I should say, and they counter offered me and I stayed. And then six months later or a year later or so, I I kind of realised I'd made a mistake and then put in my notes and actually left and moved to London. And then I never, at, at the London job, I was progressing through the ranks pretty well and um, never getting kind of what, what I wanted to get out of it, which I guess is a lot of people's experience, which is why people leave. And then got a big raise handy in my notice and stayed and then ended up leaving and up my own company. So I can understand. That's why I'm interested to ask because there's that period of time, isn't there, like, naturally when you stay somewhere for a period of time it doesn't accelerate as it probably otherwise could but then you don't want to be jumpy around left right and center so yeah it makes sense that first period of time because it's also you know i look at cvs now and and interview people for roles in you look at it and you think you know never quite stuck around anywhere and like our vision for this like senior role is a few years and that's based on it being, you know, a two-way relationship. We've got to do up, keep our side of the bargain. But you do. I, I personally look at CV sometimes and think, oh, no more than eighteen, twenty-four months somewhere, and just makes you feel like it's not necessarily someone that's in it for the long term. Is that fair? One hundred percent. 
And top tip for everyone listening, do not stay for counter-offers. So I know oh, you, you said you, just, you did it twice. You've done me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is that p- just poor form? Yeah. Do not stay for a counter-offer. <laughs> the, the negative effects of staying, you know, completely outweigh. What, you know, what are the those negative effects? Let's so talk negative effects, firstly, if they give you a salary increase, what's going to happen when it comes to next pay review or promotion time? They'll remember you held them to ransom because they needed you for, to finish that project. And they'll so, naturally hold it against you, do you think? Yeah, exactly. So you may not get the future pay rise that you deserve. If you're moving to a new employer, you're going pastures new, you're starting off effectively on zero with them, but on this higher salary. So you are able to build your rep with them and get a much higher salary increase and Even promotion. Even if they're begging you to stay, though. Why did they not reward you when you deserved it? Why did it take you having to leave? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's yeah, it, the first one is a kind of a unique situation because I actually wanted to leave the countryside and live in London, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but and so they, moving, they should have still made it happen for you if you said I want to do it and you were that valued by them. Then you've gone through that process with a new organisation, and you know they've wanted to bring you on board. They've taken time out, and then you've just said, "No, I'm staying with my old company." So they'll yeah. get, they won't be happy. So. People don't forget. So I'm a bad egg. Is that what we're saying? Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately. What would you What would you say though? Because I'm not good at, or I wasn't good at this, in terms of really putting forward how you deserve a pay rise, right? Because it's not an easy conversation to have. Whoever you're having it with, most people's bosses aren't their best mates. How would you go about it? Sure, sure. So hopefully, a lot of organisations now don't just do the annual appraisal. I think that's been replaced by more regular reviews and it's far better. You know, you don't need to wait a year uh, or this is the pay pay time. Um, You should be there. um, And it is down to you as an individual. If you feel you deserve a pay rise, what have I done to achieve this pay rise? Why do I deserve this? Think about it in your head. Use your phone to begin with. Just put it in your notes. What are the key achievements? What have I done for this company? Why should I deserve it? Do not say inflation because that doesn't go down very well, but put it down to what you've actually achieved, what you've done. Um, those, those things that you've done outside of the comfort zone where you've gone above and beyond. And do you do it on a consistent basis? And as a QS, it's quite easy theoretically. All project controls, right? Say, look, that thing happened and I delivered X amount to the business, right? I say that as if it was easy and then I'm just, on the other hand, saying I wasn't very good at doing it myself. And also, like... One other thing is reach out to people in your network um, to understand what is the market paying because you can utilize that, but you can't, you've got to use a number of factors. If you just say, this is what the market's paying, then I want this, that doesn't go down too well. But if you combine it all together in one, where this is what I've done, this is what's happening in the market, I'm not saying I want to leave, but this is what I feel I deserve. Can we make this happen? And alternatively, is if you're happy to be a bit patient, this is what I've done. This is what the market's paying. Let's set up a plan for me. This is the salary I want. What do I need to do? If I hit these targets, then we all know that it's agreed. It's, it's, it's already done. I think that's a really good way of looking at it, actually, isn't it? You know, like saying, look, this is where I want to be and I know I can get there externally. I want to stay here. How do, I, how, do I, how do we collectively march towards it? That does make sense. Talking now... In the alternative, right? Let's imagine that you're talking to me and I'm an employer. So, like, I'm a main contractor. I'm someone who employs people in project controls. It's a competitive market. We've already talked about that. There's not enough 
good resource. There's not enough resource, let alone the good resource. What do you see happen often where it's bang average, you know, like recruitment and advertisement for QSs or people in project controls? So uh, you want to see how an employer improves their branding? Yeah, well, uh, how, how... how shouldn't they do okay. it? So one thing, employer, every, every company, a lot of companies think that they're the best company to work for. You're not, unfortunately. <laughs> there's so many companies out. We are. There's so we many are. companies out there. Understand firstly, what is your u- unique selling point? So if you understand what your USP is, that's the starting point. Uh, for I, instance, though, I'm a, I'm a contractor. What could that be? What is my USP? It could be a number of things, you know, in terms of, and it's not going to be that different from other contractors. But for example, a big thing at the moment, you know, it's, you know, the gen- gender bias, you know, and how to get more, more females into the workplace, especially QSs, you know, onto site or onto, onto certain projects. So advocating, you know, making it easier because still today, women who are mums are, are normally, you know, more the, the carer, predominant carer at home. So making their life a bit more easier with the flexi working, you know, on site crash, whatever it may be, for example, you know, just throwing it out there full support of accreditation, education, allowing time off, things like that, being more clarity on pay scales as well. So yeah, you're joining on this, but in 12 months time, this is this is what you could be. And being really visible on that. I don't see employers doing that because they're all, it's all a bit scared, you know, because if someone sees that, well, I'll do this. This is what you said to me I'd get. But no, no, this is what you could be on, but you need to do these different things really. Because that's, um, that's you, you see that quite a lot is job adverts without, pay scales yeah what's your view on like should you be uh, up front with it yeah on, on on job adverts people know what what the range is on salary put that on there um and and it'll help you as an employer because it'll, it will clear away you know you'll only get focused targeted applicants that are in that salary range whether people too you know not good enough or too high if you don't put the salary on and so going back to what we were saying earlier about in mid-level QS, senior QS, right? And, you know, what you were saying around expectations. So uh, say I was recruiting for a mid-level QS and we've kind of talked, you know, range is 50 to 65, right? And you put that in the job advert, let's say 50 to 65 or 50 to 60, whatever. So we put that in the job advert and then when people come to be interviewed and then you're getting them maybe to second interview or third interview however you structure it are you then saying look this is our offering now we do 50 to 60 for intermediate and then we expect these are kind of like what we expect of a senior qs so we'd want you to add that to your skill set and then we have a range of 60 to 80k or whatever for our senior qs's where we'd expect you to be in 12 months 18 months or, or whatever is that a good way of doing it that'd be great if employers could do that'd be fantastic um saying that this is what range we see you at the moment and this is by by us doing this for you and you delivering then we'll get you to that um and that'd be fantastic do they do that no never really hardly ever they, they pr- provide a bit of a career plan and pathway but they very rarely they'll talk about salaries you know this is the position we get you to you know, senior QS, commercial manager, AD, but they'll never say, oh, this is what the salary bandings are. But it almost strikes me, and for the business owners listening, as a way to stand out from the crowd then by by doing that and by and thinking about your business plan and where you want, how many seniors, commercials, whatever you want, understanding what your range is. And if you were to do that, do you think that in the current skills shortage crisis that applicants would be like, wow, that's great, I'm really engaged? 
Definitely, definitely. I think that would really help because candidates understand where they could be. We always talk about where could you be 18 months from now, three years and five years from now. And that gives them real good, you know, solid plan and that financial security as well. Sounds quite simple to me, Chirag. Fantastic, I wish, I wish. <laughs> no, but it, it, like as in a way of better advertising, attracting. You know, we always talk about that as a wide space, as an industry. We struggle to attract the best talent. So the, the and also the other thing that clients, employers need to do in, in particular is um, think about their invisible PR. So it's not what they're proactively doing, it's what people are saying about them as an organization. So their own employees, are they happy people? Do they get treated well? Are they valued? Are they going to go and refer someone into their own organization? Do they, you know, are they going to go and say to their friend or a colleague, you know, what, if you're on a joint venture on a project, you know what, you should come and work here. This place is a lot better. You, know? you don't want that though as a recruiter, do you? You want, you want, to, be, you want to be referring them. <laughs> That's all right. You know, these, there's many ways for people. There's more than enough roles around. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that it's really important for employers to understand how are they seen in the market when they're not proactively promoting them, when they're not promoting themselves. Sorry. The other side that's really important at the moment uh, is the mentoring side. So, what is your mentoring like? Because that is where people get to really light speed their career ahead. If they get the right mentor and someone dedicated to supporting them, it will really help. Uh, as an employer, have you got the right people that can do this and showcasing those stories? Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. It's almost saying you're in this range. We want to get you to that range where you'll be earning this number or in that range. And we're going to help you to get there through this qualification training. And we're going to allocate you a mentor who's been on that journey and is going to help you along with it. That makes perfect sense. And it sounds like an attractive proposition as opposed to just bartering over a num- the best number that you can get to on today, today's negotiation as opposed to long term. Exactly. And when you are hiring, making that hiring process smooth quick what i would you know my ideal client scenario would be i put the candidate forward to the cl- to the client cv within you know two or three days there's feedback the initial there's a team's interview or a team's screening chat depending on the client if they want to see the person face to face i think that's not a problem you don't need to do everything on teams going for an interview and then it's all about time frames and feedback yeah, if you see someone for an interview, make sure you give feedback within 48 hours. If it's a no, it doesn't need to be in depth. Give it as a no, and then you can follow up with the more in depth feedback a few days later if you're busy, but just so they understand that, you know what, I need to move on. If it's a yes, make sure that the candidates are aware that look, we're really interested. We're going to progress to an offer. We're just working out the right position, the financial offering, and then we will come back to you within said set time frame. It is a busy market. Candidates are probably looking at one, you know, between one and five potential employers. Um, I wouldn't say it's those that get to the post first, but it's those that treat the candidate well and have that candidate have the best experience. That's, that, that's yeah. invisible PR as well, isn't it? Even people that haven't worked for you but have had that touch point with you, that interview, like that feedback process, it all plays part of how you're perceived externally, doesn't it? There's a lot of that I think you could be taken on board there and a lot of simple minor tweaks that employers could make to make themselves much more attractive. Final question. We're running out of time here. Really interesting chat. I want to go back to Power BI, data and AI. Obviously, those data and AI is very impactful on the project controls side of the industry. 
among other areas. Perhaps maybe less so initially for traditional quantity surveying. But we're, like I said, I'm seeing more and more people moving from or talking about the move from quantity surveying to data and AI. What would be your advice for QSs listening to this who are interested in making that move? So there's so much out there at the moment on the internet about what, you know, you can YouTube videos, free, free training available on LinkedIn, other sites as well. There's also paid for training, which isn't expensive. Um, which I, I, if anyone wants to get in touch, I can share with you a couple of companies that do it. And, you know, take that first step, take the initiative, understand how to do it. If you're, if you're a good QS, it won't be hard to learn it. And then in your current project, take on some of those duties, offer to do it. Even if it takes a bit of your own spare time, start to do it, get that on-site experience. And then you can start thinking about full-time uh, crossing, crossing over into that role um, but like I said first steps research google it YouTube videos understand what, what it's about do some training on it get used to it and then do the actual work itself and then after that you can either internally start applying for roles or look outside are they better paid roles again it's a bit of a grey area I would say at the moment because people still are understanding the value and importance of it um, I think the market for it's really going to hot up in the next, now it is, and over the next 18 months, you're going to see real growth in that area. The AI side, whatever you're in, adapt or be left behind. You know, it, it is crazy times that we're living in at the moment. Um, even as a recruiter, I think there's a new one, People GPT, which is going to get rid of the recruiter. Um, it's really good so, knowing you, mate, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, so you, you just got to adapt and it will make your life easier as well. You know, make you more efficient as a person. Um, if you do understand how to use these type of things and, and the changes and just be, be, be up to date with the latest trends in technology. It has been an amazing chat, actually, mate. I've really enjoyed that. I think it's been really, really interesting. I'm sure everyone listening has felt the same. I will obviously share your details in the podcast description, your LinkedIn and details of your company. But yeah, all that's left to be said, mate, is thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for your time. Lovely, mate. And everyone, I will speak to you next week. Have a great week ahead.